Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, February 28th, 2018. light episode today, continuing our look at the Ten Commandments, details forthwith. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles, and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching that people are receiving from these people are, it's like not even close to biblical. It's just absurd. Now, part of the way you learn sound biblical discernment, good exegesis, and uh, and what it is that we're to be discipled in is learning how to distinguish between good exegetical preaching and teaching, not just sermons, but teachings as well, as opposed to nonsense that's taken out of context designed to you know scratch your itching ears and make you feel really good about yourself. Now, the Ten Commandments were not given to make you feel good about yourself, like not at all. So we are up to the next commandment. Next commandment is thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor or give false testimony against your neighbor. That's what we're going to be looking at. So let's go ahead and get into our text. Here's the next lesson. All right, let's pray and we'll get into it then, since you guys are all such dutiful and ready students. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are opening up your word to study the commandment that says to not bear false witness against our neighbors. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand what your word reveals in this regard, that we would repent of any ways in which we have not kept this commandment and bear fruit in keeping with repentance in love towards you in our neighbor and protecting his reputation. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, fun topic, the topic of the Eighth Commandment, you will not bear false witness against your neighbor. Um, we're going to note as we walk through this that there's misapplication, misunderstanding, and a lot of committing of this sin, even more than people would think. 
And I find it fascinating in our day and age, breaking the Eighth Commandment is a um, big deal. Let me give you an example that may be a little bit politically charged. It's not intended to be politically charged. However, if you haven't noticed, the political discourse in our country today is toxic. Have any of you noticed this, or is this just me? Now, terrible tragedy occurred a week and a half, almost two weeks ago now, with the shooting in, in, the school shooting in, in uh, Florida. And one of the things I've been very discouraged in watching is that there is political rhetoric that is literally placing the blame for the school shooting on the NRA. Now, I'm not a member of the NRA. I'm not. But I can tell you this, it is an absolute fact, that there has never been a mass shooting in the United States conducted by a member of the NRA. And the NRA is not responsible for what happened. You can sit there and say, that kid who fired that weapon and killed those 17 kids, he's responsible. And you can say that the government, in several different ways, has let those students down. You could talk about the Broward County sheriffs, who didn't respond in a timely manner. You can talk about the FBI, who received explicit calls saying this kid was unhinged and was getting ready to blow and did nothing. But the one group you cannot blame is the NRA. And so what I find fascinating in our society, there is a lot of the breaking of the Eighth Commandment that goes on. And oftentimes it is justified if it will forward a particular political agenda. Now, at this particular example that that we just named, this happens to be the American left is the one engaging in this rhetoric, and it's sinful and it's wrong. But that does not exonerate the political right in the United States, because the political right has also been guilty of breaking the Eighth Commandment in its rhetoric. And I find that breaking the Eighth Commandment never helps solve a problem, never creates unity within our country, nor does it lead to saner minds sitting down and hashing out and working out a problem. It doesn't. So I'm going to just kind of say that up front. That's just one example of breaking the Eighth Commandment that we can discuss. But as we look at the Scriptures on this, we have to consider the seriousness of this particular sin. Many people, when they say that they have lied, they will excuse it and say, It was just a white lie. I didn't know lies came in colors. White lie, okay. Pink lie, not so good. Black lie, oh, that's a bad one. No, this is not how this works. There's no such thing as a white lie. And this is a very, very serious sin. Consider then, in this kind of broader context, since we're looking at the second table of the law, Second table of the law has to do with our relationships with each other. You shall not murder teaches us that our, we are our brother's keepers and that our brother's physical health is our problem. It's our responsibility. We are to protect our neighbor in their physical being. Thou shalt not steal tells us that we are further our brother's keeper 
by making sure to protect our neighbor in his possessions and the things that he needs in order to care for his bodily needs. But I want you to consider this next one as still connected to that in this sense. How many people could operate in a small community like this if they were known and their reputation that they were a nefarious, underhanded sleazeball? How well would they do? There's some of them, but overall they wouldn't do so well. They don't. (laughs) Now imagine if you had to live in this community and operate and work in this community, and there was a slanderous report about you that was circling about, circulating through the community that was totally false. Totally false. How easy would that be? It'd be very difficult. You see, God does not will for your reputation, your good name, to be taken from you without at least some sense of due process. And so we're going to note that when we talk about the Eighth Commandment, there is a process by which somebody can have their name taken from them, at least their name besmirched. And you can rightly warn people. Kind of two instances. One within the church regarding private sins that we commit against each other and public sins that are committed within the pulpit or within the context of teaching within the church. And I'll point this out, that within the church, Scripture gives us example after example of false teachers who are named, rebuked, warned against. So if somebody is publicly teaching false doctrine in the church, that we must, pastors especially have this task, warn people of their false doctrine, and warn people who are teaching that false doctrine. This is one of the clear and explicit duties of the pastoral office. No pastor gets exempted from this. And as Christians, we get to participate in this as well. I would note a passage in particular, 1 Timothy chapter 1. I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul does here. Paul, talking to young pastor Timothy in this pastoral epistle, says... This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Pastors are to wage the good warfare. Fight the good fight of faith. Holding faith and a good conscience. And by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are, listen to this, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. To blaspheme is to break the second commandment, to take God's name in vain, to attribute to things, attribute false teaching or false practices to God. And Paul names them and says he's handed them over to Satan. And furthermore, this is in the context of young Pastor Timothy being encouraged to wage the good warfare, to fight the good fight of faith. So part of this we have to understand is that when it comes to false teachers twisting God's word, they must be warned against. And Scripture makes it very clear that we are to judge those within the household of faith. Within the church, they are to be judged. Now, follow-up to this text then would be Titus chapter 1, which is not a popular text among many today. Titus chapter 1, talking about the duties of a pastor... 
says this to Titus. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order. This is verse 5. Appoint elders in every town. These are pastors, as I directed you. Here are the qualifications. If anyone is above reproach, husband of one wife, his children are believers, and are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination for an overseer, as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Now, this first part of the list, everybody goes, yeah, well, duh. You know, if you had a pastor who's moonlighting as a bank robber and was getting drunk every Friday night, everybody would say, yeah, that guy's not qualified to be a pastor. The text continues. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to, the word is rebuke, rebuke those who contradict it. That's the job of a pastor. I always say it kind of tongue-in-cheek when we walk through this text that if Kongsvinger were to give me an annual evaluation, I would expect that the pastoral duties as outlined in Scripture would be listed and the deacons and the church council would be asking the question, who have you been rebuking? You're respected to. I'd like to know who you've been rebuking. Now, it's not very Norwegian, but it's biblical. You get the idea. So then it goes on. And here's the reason why. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. These are the Judaizers. And they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That's right, Paul engaged in name-calling. So this testimony is true. Rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So you're going to note, when it comes to the false teacher... The expectation is you name names, you rebuke, you warn for the purpose of fulfilling the will of God. And God's will is that false teachers are silenced. That's the job that we have. So you're going to note then that in talking about the Eighth Commandment, I put this out here because we have to kind of keep our categories straight. Because a lot of people nowadays... They, are get, they get really squirrely and uncomfortable when you name a false teacher by name and you lay out their false teaching. And then they will misapply a particular text. Matthew 18. Say, no, 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 you can't, you can't say this guy's a heretic and he's teaching false doctrine. You can't say that publicly. Have you followed the steps in Matthew 18? Does anyone see the problem? Matthew 18 is not about dealing with a false teacher. Matthew 18 is the next process. What do you do when somebody privately sins against you? When somebody sins against you, Matthew 18 is now in play. Step one, get on Facebook and Twitter and let everybody know how they sinned against you. And Snapchat, I guess that's a, whole, that's a thing too. That's what step one is, right? No. So you're going to note, step one, if you read Matthew 18, is you go to the person privately. 
The purpose is their repentance and you being reconciled to that person. Step two, you involve other people. If they still will not listen to you and other people, then, and only then, do you bring it up to the church. It becomes a public matter. So there's a process. When there are charges brought against a pastor, Scripture requires that those charges be established by how many witnesses? Two. Two or more. Two or more witnesses. But I'm going to tell you, as somebody who's been in the pastoral office for a while, I can guarantee you this is not how this works. What ends up happening is somebody gets an idea in their head, the pastor's not doing this, that, or the other thing, or he's doing this, that, or the other thing wrong. First thing they do, pick up the phone and share that with other people and gossip and spread rumors. That's a sin. It's got to stop. Flat out, it's a breaking of the Eighth Commandment. If there's a true charge that your pastor or another pastor has committed, there's a process for addressing it. And your pastor should never have his name and reputation stolen from him through the breaking of the Eighth Commandment. If he's truly done something that requires his repentance and removal from the office or repentance, there's a process that that is taken care of, and it's taken care of privately because God wills that his reputation is guarded as well. Somehow we think that pastors are exempt from the Eighth Commandment, and we can just lie about them all we want. No, you can't. It's a sin. So, third thing, then, is in the civil realm. Civil realm. And you're going to note, in the United States of America, when you are brought up on charges of committing a crime, you are presumed innocent until proven guilty. So you're going to note this, that every newspaper in the United States, when somebody is arrested and charged with a crime... They will always speak about them as being charged with it or presumed that they have done it, but they will never speak about that person in a way that says with with definitiveness, they actually did it unless they are convicted. Yeah, they are alleged to have done this. And I would say this, the mainstream media is more careful in keeping the Eighth Commandment than many Christians are. Because they know that if they didn't put that little word in there, alleged, and it turns out that person didn't commit the crime, next order of business, that paper or that news outlet is going to get sued for slander. And they're going to lose their shirts. And that person who they hated so much that they refused to actually abide by the law, they're going to end up paying millions to that fellow or gal. So somebody's reputation is a big deal, and even pagans recognize it. You know, you're talking biblically. You know, if you have a problem, if I have a problem with your name, I need to go to her first. Yep. I need to go to you and her. And then what about if someone is doing you harm, they're doing you slander, and they're spreading your name, that is false, that is not a church? How do you deal with that? I mean, what you're saying is, is wonderful. It all has to do with the church. Mm-hmm. It has to do with the Bible. But what about the people that aren't? Okay. This is going to be... In, so the question it has to do with... All right. So you've talked about how we deal with each other. Mm-hmm. You've talked about how the world handles crimes. Now the question is, what about in our dealings with the pagan world? 
and somebody who is not a believer is slandering you or doing something against you. Or not of the church that you belong to. Okay. Well, if they're a member of a church, oftentimes you can get their pastor involved. Yeah. So you're going to have, you, ha, you do have some options. Sometimes the best option is to just contact that person and say, listen, you know, I, I'm, not sh- I'm not sure what brought this on, but can we talk about this? Is there a way that we can be reconciled? And see if, they, if you can bring a mediator to bring into the, into the situation. There, you may be able to solve it. Because we are to be at peace as much as it is on us with everybody. And it just might be that the only option that you're going to have, which is a terrible one, in order to get them to stop doing what they're doing would be to actually involve the courts. That is an option to us. But that's going to be an option of last resort. You know, our, our goal is to reconcile even with our pagan believers, uh, unbelievers and neighbors. That's the idea. Look at Titus 1.5 that mentions that the elder has said children are both our food. Who are believers? Yeah. Now, one in the case of like, well, you know, Matt's like, he's a daughter who is not a believer. I mean, couldn't be an elder or a pastor? You know, that's a that's a good question. There's several. There's a lot of debate on this, and you, you're going to have to make some careful distinctions. So the question that's going to come in, first of all, is when did the person become a believer? You know, if a person, if a fellow becomes a believer in his 30s, and his kids were already in high school and raised in paganism and they weren't brought to Christianity, that's one thing. And so there are, there are some commentators who will say, in a situation like that, that wouldn't apply because they were raised as unbelievers. They're still unbelievers. That's, yeah, that's not right. What this is really getting at, then, is the idea that somebody who has been a Christian, fathered, raised their children to be Christians, and they are unbelievers, that's a problem. That's a real problem. Yeah. Now, and see, that's, that's now the second distinction. Okay. At what point is the child, you know, the, the child displaying these problems? If all growing up, they're believers, they get into college, get in with a wild crowd, and then in their mid-20s and 30s, they're completely living a debaucherous life. They're doing so once they got out from under their father. And in a situation like that, there are commentators who would say, yeah, that's, you know, in a situation like that, that's understandable. That's on the adult child because they're not children. So the, the context then is how is the pastor managing his household? I'll be blunt, you know, my kids, you know, I, I don't have household control over them. You know, that, that, that left when they, they became 18. But up to that point, you know. You know, that, there's, a, there's a different thing altogether. You know, we, we just used to crack the whip and keep them in the dungeon if they didn't behave. So, <laughs> so uh, did that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. I think his daughter is an adult. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he raised her. Yeah, no, if she was a rebellious child while living in his house, then the, then the point is, 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 is Matt a, um, is he a pastor? No, but he was at one time. Okay. And I think he just left on his own. He wasn't. Yeah, I didn't think he was. I, it's been a while since he'd been a pastor. Then there might be some. It depends on which denomination. There might be some who would take issue with Matt if he wanted to be in the pastoral office today. But you know, he, he's uh, he's a public teacher within the church as an apologist. So you know, and and I would say if his daughter after eighteen 
rebelled against all of this. That's a different story altogether. All right, let's take a look at some text then as we consider this commandment. The eighth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Small catechism asks the question, what does this mean? And it means that we should fear and love God so that we do not tell lies about our neighbor. Betray him, slander him, or hurt his reputation. Instead, we are to defend him, speak well of him, and explain everything in the kindest way. Oh, if only that were... <laughs> the... That is the hardest. Uh-huh. You are angry, you are upset. Uh-huh. And here's the thing. We, because of our sinful nature, we, I think, have a default mode where we want to think the worst of our neighbors, the very worst, not the best. The very worst. That's kind of the thing. I'll give you an example from Scripture, which I think is a fascinating one, if you want to look at Mark chapter 14. And here's an interesting story. Jesus is in the house of Simon the leper. I like to think that, although the text doesn't say so, that a better name for this fellow by this time would be Simon the man formerly known as a leper, because Jesus is eating at his house. So it says, while he was at Bethany, this is Christ, in the house of Simon the leper... As he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Nard, by the way, very expensive, something from India. You'd have to get it from the Bedouin uh, camel traders who would make trips to the Orient and bring it back with them. Very expensive ointment. And she broke the flask, poured it over Jesus' head. And watch this. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? That question is assuming this woman has done something evil, wrong, that she cares nothing about. Nope, what is going on here? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. We learned from the cross reference, by the way, who was the one who made the complaint about it could have been sold and given to the poor. Does anyone know? It was Judas. It was Judas, the one who betrayed Christ, who made this complaint. So notice what Judas does. This woman cares nothing about the poor. How dare she anoint Jesus like this? This woman is horrible. She's awful. Totally took her reputation and smashed it on the ground. Did she care nothing about the poor? Did the poor have anything to do with what was going on here? So this is an example of straight-up slander. Breaking of the Eighth Commandment, and watch what Jesus does. Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. You always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Jesus not only stands up for her against the slanderous accusation, he blesses her by saying what she's done is going to be told to everybody. I would argue that the year 2018 in rural Oslo, Minnesota, after a snow day, is about as far removed as you can get from Judea when this occurred 2,000 years ago. And yet we know this woman did this because Christ stood up for her, and he wanted this story told. And you, but the first move was an absolute tearing down of this woman's character 
by Judas. And it was wrong. Breaking of the Eighth Commandment. All right, we're going to pause there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back, the balance of today's lecture uh, regarding thou shalt not bear false witness. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. This might feel like theological waterboarding, but you'll get used to it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. presents Church Day Select. Hey guys, it's Rex here, again. Now I know that all of you have been hearing about the latest bad in the church called an Emmaus Walk. Well, you know what I think? It's uber lame. I mean, what's so special about going on a little walk, hoping and praying that Jesus is going to show up and have an enlightenment picnic with you? It's not nearly hardcore enough. I'm starting a new fad. It's called the Road to Damascus Walk. You don't go out trying to find Jesus. He finds you. And after he's found you, he knocks you off your horse, throws you in the mud, blinds you, and then sends you on a harrowing journey to a town that you've never been to in order to find a prophet of God. It's way more awesome than an ant-infested picnic next to a scum-filled pond! Don't believe me? Well, then give it a shot. I dare you. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Oi, Captain! We got ourselves a heretic! (laughs) (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? 
she be endorsing the health and wealth heresy? Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich! (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box? No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. is to heretic, to R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith may cause you to think that, uh, well, gossiping and lying and slandering are a big deal to God. Because they are. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you're going to see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The last one says become a patron. Let me explain all of this to you. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically help us month after month after month, and your rank in our crew is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. Great way to support us. Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster, $99.95 a month. Joining our crew, great way to support us. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, click on the Donate button. If you'd like to become a patron on Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. And if you'd like to support us the old-fashioned way, you can make your gift payable too. Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here's the balance of today's first look at the commandment that says, Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. Here we go. So God commands us to speak truthfully and charitably about our neighbors so that others view them in the best, and here's an important word, the best possible light. Sometimes the best possible light is pretty dark. Sometimes it is. However, as Christians, we are to seek that best possible light where possible. So as Christians, then, we seek to improve and protect the reputation of others so that people will think well of them. So here's a question. Who in your lives, or or in this community, needs you to speak well of them? Who needs you to speak well of them? Yeah, we all do. Yeah. (laughs) Now, a little bit of a note, historical 
recent history, I forget the name of the, um, the doctor in Michigan who was, it was his last name, Kavork, the, the one with the, uh, the gymnast. That dude. Yeah, Dr. Dude. The guy who molested all of those, those girls. Nassan. Yeah, Dr. Nassan. Now, I want you to consider this. I want you to consider this. The, one of the gals who's primarily responsible for that legal action. She, as a young gal, was an athlete. She was abused by him. And she sought justice for what had happened to her. And here's kind of the tragedy in all of this. She actually tried to go through the right channels initially and even spoke to people in her own church about what happened to her, and they shot her down. One of the people she went to was one of the, was the president of the university there in Michigan. And this woman was like literally like intimidated to do nothing. And then she eventually found the right legal channel to do this through, but in so doing realized that she would have to sacrifice some of her own privacy so that the, to- the story could be told. But here's the thing. It got told to the right people. She didn't take to the Internet and say, this guy is an evil monster. She took to the government, and in so doing, she was able to get justice, not only for herself, but for all of these other women and girls who were abused by this fellow. And so now he's convicted. He's convicted and is in prison, and we know what he's done, but the reason we know what he's done is because it was done properly. And it cost her to do it. And it took a long time for there to be justice. But she eventually was able to confront the man who abused her. And given that opportunity in court, you know what she did? She preached the gospel to him. Fascinating. Fascinating. So now this guy has had his reputation taken from him properly. The best construction that you can put on his reputation is that he is a monstrous sexual predator. And we pray, we pray that the last thing that will be said of him is that he is a forgiven, penitent sexual predator. So that the one who brought suit against him, her desire for him is that he's forgiven. What happened? I think her story is fascinating because it shows both law and gospel being channeled properly. Law, so that this man would be convicted of his crimes and that there would be justice. And in the midst of it, she preaches the gospel to him so that ultimately he can have forgiveness with Christ. But all done orderly and properly and not done slanderously through the rumor mill, social media, and gossip. And what she did was not only brave, probably the most Christian way of handling being a victim of that kind of crime that I have ever witnessed. And to her, you know, I just say, praise the Lord that she understands the gospel and God's law well enough to have been able to persevere 
and bring this thing to where it came, where it got to. So, again, hand, handled properly. Why is a good reputation important? We've hinted at this already. A good reputation is important so that each of us may enjoy the trust and the respect of others. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. Ecclesiastes 7.1 says, A good name is better than precious ointment. It truly is. I don't care if you're rich. I don't care if you're poor. I don't care if you're powerful. I don't care if you literally struggle to put food on the table. If you have a good reputation and a good name, you are truly blessed and are able to serve your neighbors well. But if you are wealthy or poor and you have a bad name, a bad reputation, then it's very difficult to do anything. So how do we then fear and love God by keeping the Eighth Commandment? We fear and love God by not speaking about others in ways that would harm them or their reputation. Harmful speech includes, and I wish this was just common sense, but it clearly is not, telling lies about our neighbors in everyday life or even in the court of law. This is the thing that's shocking to me is how many people who publicly claim to be Christians who are flat-out slanderers and liars and even lie under oath. It's actually quite shocking. Consider the irony of this situation, if you would. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. This is the account of Jesus being on trial. We're going to start at verse 59. And I just want you to consider the sheer irony of this situation. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. What a strange sentence. Let me back up in the context just a little bit. Those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. A little bit of an archaeological note. If you pay attention to archaeological news coming out of Israel, it's been a few years now, but a few years back, they actually found the home of Caiaphas. We know exactly where this took place. You know, we know you can go to it today. They could show you the outline of the courts of Caiaphas, and you can say with absolute certainty, Jesus stood on these stones. This is where he was put on trial. Strange place to be put on trial, middle of the night. But then the the verse we just read: the chief priests, the whole council. What were they seeking? False testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. The guy who is the head of the church, if you would, in the Old Testament, the high priest, the most religious of religious dudes, who's tasked with the religious duties of Israel, the chief priest himself has no conscience. He has no fear of God. And the thing he is openly looking for is anybody can anybody put me in touch with anybody who'd be willing to come forward and lie about Jesus so we can kill him. They couldn't tell that you know they 
saying that lies because Jesus is sinless. Yeah. So that they have to. That's the thing. Well, Jesus never did anything wrong, technically. So how do we kill this fellow? I know. Let's lie about him. They did this in the fear of losing power. Right. They, they feared losing power more than they feared God. That's a misplaced fear. Because I think it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. So the whole premise of Jesus' trial is we need false witnesses. So the chief priests and the whole council, they were seeking false testimony, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward, because in order for his charge to be established, you need two witnesses. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. That's not what Jesus said. By the way, this is our gospel text next Sunday. We'll pay attention to the details. Jesus did not say, tear down the temple of God and I will build it again in three days. Jesus said, tear down this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. So, at this point, the theatrics kick in. The high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What are these men testifying against you? And then he tears his clothes. Again, the irony here that the guy in charge of all of the religious duties of Israel is actively seeking to break the Eighth Commandment in order to put Jesus to death. The irony should not be lost on any of us. Let's take a look at Colossians chapter 3. And a reminder that Colossians chapter 3, I know this seems basic, comes after Colossians chapter 1 and 2. In Colossians chapter 1 and 2, we are explicitly told that we are saved by grace through faith, and we are assured that because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, that the record of debt that stood against us has been canceled and nailed to the cross. The reason why we as Christians do good works is because we is saved, not in order to be saved. If you get the order wrong, you're into the sin of self-righteousness, and you risk your own salvation. So because we are saved, Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? And this list seems pretty basic. What's earthly in us would include sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you two once walked, Again, noting the word walk is a Hebraism for how you conduct your life. You used to conduct your life like this when you were living in them. But now, you Christians, because you are saved, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice. A little bit of a note here. A little bit of a note. Apparently, because I have or I enjoy being a little bit of a public figure because of Pirate Christian Radio, if somebody were to slander or libel me, in order for me to protect myself in the court of law, I have to meet a higher standard in defending myself. I would have to prove that they were motivated by malice in order to win my case. Malice. What is that? What is malice? 
Well, it's an intention. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a willful hatred. It's a willful hatred against somebody that you want to destroy them. And I would note that murder and slander come off of that same root. Malice. If you really truly hate someone's guts and you want to destroy them, if you're really brazen, you'll kill them physically. If you're cowardly, you'll try to murder them by destroying their reputation. Both of them come from the same root, though, malice. So we as Christians are to put that away. Malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So malice, slander, and lying are all out. That includes white lies. The text doesn't say, put away black lies, white lies are okay. No lying, no slandering, no malice. This is contrary to Scripture. Another text about false testimony, which really leads, it's a terrible story if you think about it, is found in 1 Kings chapter 21. A little bit of the history here. We're teleporting into the point in time in Israel's history where Ahab is king and his wife Jezebel is the princess queen. Jezebel in Hebrew means the princess of Baal. This woman is an idolater through and through. We're going to learn something about Ahab in the midst of this too. And it's the story of Naboth. 1 Kings chapter 21 Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, the king of Samaria. After this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I might have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a vineyard for it or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. Kind of a note here. This is the story of the emperor's new groove that Disney movie. It's kind of the same kind of a uh, boom, baby. Anyway, so that's really kind of what's going on. So Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab went into his house. Listen to this description. Vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father, So he lay down on his bed, turned his face, and would eat no food. Uh Uh-huh. We all know what that is. That's a full-blown temper tantrum. And you can just see him in his bed, probably crying. I really wanted that for my vegetable garden. He's having a full-blown temper tantrum. Enter Jezebel, or Jezebel. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, why is your spirit vexed that you eat no food? You tell she's a little, like, would you just man up? So he said, 
to her, because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite. He said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else I'll please give you another vineyard. For he says he's blubbering, right? And he answered, I'm not giving you my vineyard. <laughs> so <laughs> Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you not now govern Israel? Arise, eat bread, let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. That's scary. That's, this whole thing is sick. Yeah, I'm sorry, but Game of Thrones has nothing on the Bible. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal. She sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in a city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast, set Naboth at the head of the people, set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king, and then take him out and stone him to death. So the men of the city and the elders of the leaders who lived in the city did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast, set Naboth at the head of the people, and the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city, stoned him to death with stones. And then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. However, there is a God. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give for, uh, to you for money. For Naboth is not alive, he's dead. So you can just see Ahab going, <laughs> Goody. So Ahab heard that Naboth was dead. Ahab rose and go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. No conscience at all. So then the word of Yahweh came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he's in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says Yahweh, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says Yahweh, In the place where dogs lift up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. I would argue that the murder began when the worthless fellows spoke the lies about Naboth. That was the first move. And like I said, there are plenty of people today who act in malice. They don't want to go to prison for actually murdering somebody, but they desire something. And in order to get what they want, somebody's got to die. Maybe not physically, but we're going to destroy that person's reputation. It's a form of murder. I think it actually started with Jezebel all planning the whole thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. Murder begins in the heart. But, boy, she was smooth, wasn't she? She was really smooth. Was she the mother of Ahab? No, no. Wife. Yeah. She was... Her father was a priest of Baal, and she comes from a family of idolaters from the area, you know, Phoenician area. Just as wicked as they get. So how was she related to Naboth? Uh, how she related to who? Naboth. Nadab- Naboth just happened to be the fellow who owned a vineyard that, well, was close enough to the palace that um, Ahab wanted it for a vegetable garden. He had he had it all worked out. I'm going to have the cucumbers here and going to have, you know, oh, carrots over there. It's just going to be glorious. 
And Naboth said no. What was her purpose? What did she get out of <laughs> Yeah, this is... She already had the vineyard to begin with. Yeah, well... <laughs> yeah, you're going to note that human nature in its corruption seeks power, fame, money, sex. You know, these are powerful motivations. Okay, so... <laughs> In all of this, I mean, from her point of view, this little fellow, how dare he stand in the way of what Ahab wants? He is the king. And as king, he has power. And since uh, since Ahab wasn't flexing his power, she went ahead and just did it for him. Yeah. Uh And now then consider the impact that something like this would have on the rest of, of Samaria. You know, did you... You don't oppose... Ahab. Because if you oppose Ahab, you're going to be killed. This is a mafia tactic. Did they not have the concept of eminent domain back then, where the king would just say, well, for the good of everybody, I'm going to take over this garden. You can do it. Yeah, the eminent domain in that sense didn't exist. And the Mosaic Covenant strictly speaks against that. You shall not steal absolutely implies that private property is a thing and that God demands you respect it. And so... Yeah, yeah. And so, and and here's the thing is, is that somebody giving up the inheritance that they have, and so Naboth, he had that vineyard because his father had that vineyard. Grandfather had it, going all the way back to the children of Israel, taking possession of the promised land, uh, when Joshua was alive. So he wasn't willing to give up his inheritance. And by the way, which is a smart move. Because your livelihood is tied to the land. He, yeah, but he didn't want to give up what was... And that was his right. He, was like his family home, right? Yeah. Nobody has the right to force you to sell a piece of property unless, of course, you're in debt. But if you own it outright, nobody can say, you have to sell this to me. You can make an offer. Somebody can make an offer. And you can say, nope, I'm not going to do that. And that's your right. Let's end there for today. We will continue our study of the Eighth Commandment next week. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you and the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ is vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.